Do you ever get together with family this time of year and maybe the meal goes long and folks unwind a bit more than usual and maybe you begin to reach into the family archives and the memories start to flow, not unlike what Christina invited in the children's message. You remember great aunt so-and-so? How she always... What about when grandpa used to? You wouldn't believe the way great uncle so-and-so would do this or that. I imagine in these stories there are some, some folk heroes in the mix of the family, some favored sons and favored daughters, some folks whose story is a bit too painful to really bring up again, and some who really just don't get mentioned anymore. The first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel read like opening an Old Testament family album. And if you know the stories and the people, you can have a similar kind of moment. And I think, in fact, for us to appreciate the scripture I just read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, we do need to appreciate a little bit of the first 17 verses as our passage really rests upon that. In verses 1 through 17 are, as I said, a family album, a genealogy listing all of the ancestors of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. The issue with this particular family album is that to talk about them is to bring up some good memories, but also some fairly upsetting memories. One might imagine Joseph's family gathering around the table and opening that album, and someone says, well, now there's Abraham, patriarch of our people, such remarkable faith. And then someone whispers, yeah, well, I never forgave him for lying and pretending that Sarah wasn't his wife. He was a coward at one of the more critical moments. Ah, now look, there's Tamar. And no one says much of anything because everyone quietly knows Tamar's is a complex story which included disguising herself as a prostitute so she could seduce and sleep with her father-in-law. Ah, King David, they turn the page quickly. Pride and joy of our family. A man after God's own heart. Oh, the Psalms he wrote. And maybe the family reads a few Psalms right then and there. And then someone chimes in. Yes, in the same King David who took Uriah's wife from him and to be sure that David kept Uriah as his wife made sure Uriah was murdered oh now look here's Rehoboam son of King Solomon and again no need to say much because everyone knows what hope there had been for that young revolutionary of God's purposes but when he came to the throne, he turned away from the advice of the older generation who had encouraged him to treat people well and, and lift their burden. Rehoboam instead chose to listen to his younger peers who advised oppositely. And much like today, when, when many do not like to dwell too long on the details of the Holocaust or lynchings or how people disappeared under certain regimes, the family of God does not like to sit at table and think of Rehoboam's opening speech as king, which is forever recorded in Scripture. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you, my people, with scorpions. And Rehoboam did indeed lead ruthlessly. He took 60 concubines. He set up alternative worship and turned entirely from Yahweh. The thing is, if you are Joseph's family, if you're a people of Jesus' lineage, and you sit around long enough 
to flip through the whole family album of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, you're going to chat about Rahab's boldness and her profession as a prostitute. You're going to talk of King Solomon's wisdom and his thousand wives and the wealth he built on the backs of his people. You're going to talk about good and faithful people and moments, and you're going to flip through an album chock full of cowards and liars, cheaters and murderers, oppressors and adulterers, proud people who turn, quite frankly, entirely from the way of God. Such is the family of Joseph whom we meet in this morning's passage and also of his newborn son. Importantly, the very first verse in our long list of family says, Matthew 1.1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The root word for genealogy is Genesis. It's a very purposeful allusion to the book of Genesis where we recall the beginning, the genesis of all creation. We recall that opening moment when darkness covered the face of the earth. And God, just using the power of God's word, speaks into that darkness and births creation. Light, sea and land, fish and animal, humans. It's done in this powerful, rhythmic way. It is supremely good and beautiful. Matthew wants to be perfectly clear. As in Genesis 1, when the good and beauty of creation bursts forth from darkness from God's good ordering so to the new genesis it is from a lineage of dark deeds and dark hearts that Jesus is born the first fruit of a new creation terrible soil no one would choose as their foundation this is where Jesus takes root I wonder how many of us today could flip through our own family albums maybe our friend albums our enemy albums and we could see the names and faces of the lives. And as much as we truly do love some of them, we worry about the soil of their hearts. They keep making poor decisions. They cannot shake the addiction. They are bringing this upon themselves again. They really just don't care about God or God's way. They are incredibly caught up in themselves. Or maybe the honest among us are also thinking of ourselves. The way the soil of our hearts can seem so barren and lacking in godly nourishment. Why do I do the very thing I do not want to do, cries even the Apostle Paul. The first 17 verses of Matthew declare that love in the flesh absolutely takes root in brittle, improbable soil. And then we finally arrive at the scripture I read aloud, verses 18 to 25, and there it is. A small shoot of God life just barely breaking now through the earth's surface. Verse 18, you heard. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. And there's that word again. The actual Greek word for birth is, is Genesis. Now the Genesis of Jesus took place in this way. If the first 17 verses emphasize that the new Genesis is birthed in poor, in poor soil, Verses 18 to 25 emphasize the new Genesis is birthed in a poor situation. We read Joseph and Mary are engaged, which in that culture really means they are legally bound to one another in marriage. They simply have not consummated the marriage. But then Joseph, he sees Mary's pregnant and they haven't slept together, so he assumes she's cheated on him. And in that society, really, the options are, are, are bad and worse. 
report her to the legal authorities and she will, by law, be stoned, perhaps to death, or divorce her, which leaves her and the child destitute and likely in a desperate situation. It's really an impossible situation for anything good. Joseph, we read, he's a righteous man, and so Matthew explains Joseph will choose the, the more merciful option and do his best to make things as, as easy as possible with a quiet divorce. And just as we read that Joseph was resolved in choosing the lesser of two bad options, just as the direction is settled, the angel of the Lord appears. The impossible situation is shattered with a new word from God. Joseph, son of David, the angel begins. Interesting how the angel adds son of David, as if purposely hearkening back to that genealogy and reminding us of the kind of soil in which Jesus is birthed. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you are name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Just as in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where we see God walking with humanity in the cool of the garden, so now in the new Genesis, the promise is that God is to be born among humanity with us. And notice how the angel provides a way that was not even in the realm of Joseph's imagination. For Joseph just to remain with Mary may sound simple enough to our ears, but in that time, that society, that context, that is an option entirely not viable, entirely outside of the law, outside of customs, outside the realm of imagination. And I wonder how many of us, how many of our families, how many of our situations, the realities of our nation, the realities of many of the nations of this world, how many this day face a bad and a worse option? And maybe how many of us have already resolved to go in this or that direction because that's what we have to do, like it or not? And this scripture would have us risk hope would have us lean in and ask, God, is there something else? Is there another way? Might our impossible bind be shattered by a new word, a new way, a path we've previously been blind to? Might even from the terrible soil of this situation, there be a beautiful new Genesis? Indeed, it would be 33 years later that the inevitable law of death would not hold our God. Three days later, he rose from the darkness of the grave alive. From birth to death to resurrection, the story of Jesus is about a love birthed from impoverished soil and impossible situations. Even death, the darkest of darknesses, even death proves soil from which Jesus raises life. And I can think of nothing more relevant or needful than that good news as we gather here on December 22nd, 2019. Amid grieving families gathering for Christmas, our dear couple now divorcing, or the ongoing angst of our polarized society, 
or impossible decisions around medical care or some of the people in our family albums who are just so far gone. I can't look directly at the darkness without falling into despair and a sense of helplessness unless I believe the Christmas message is real, unless I believe Jesus is in fact born this day, born from the soil of cowards and liars, cheaters and murderers, oppressors and adulterers, born even from the soil of impossible situations and death itself. Do you believe the Christmas message? Do we believe no matter how dark it is out there or in here, no matter how impossible, there Jesus is gestating, born, bringing forth a new genesis. A few years ago, I was serving as an associate pastor in a church in Decatur, Georgia. It was a busy time of year, a lot like this, lots of programming going on, and, and the leadership was having this ongoing debate about maybe we should change some of our programs or do some of them better or tweak them or do them like we used to and really all in an effort to connect with more people beyond the walls of the church and and truth be told this conversation regularly got stuck because every idea had a problem something or someone that would get upset by it that probably wouldn't work this was not remotely close to joseph's dilemma but certainly a classic case conversation of not great and worse options, just kind of churning around. Well, amid all the busyness of these stuck conversations, two folks come walking into the church on a normal Wednesday morning. Their names are Ali and Mandana. They're graduate students at Emory University at the time, and they're Muslims from Iraq. For some unexplained reason, they had taken a day to look for a nearby church, Christian church, walk through the doors and, and ask the front door receptionist, do you have a Bible that we could read? All of her years handling requests, nothing had ever come like this. She honestly wasn't precisely sure which Bible she could maybe just give away, um, but she goes, gets the interim pastor, and, and she's also a bit floored by the request, but just takes the first two she sees and says, here, they're yours. Um, would you like to talk about what you end up reading in these Bibles, and they would. A few days later, I, I get looped into this whole thing, and I meet with them. We want to become Christians. You what? <laughs> become Christians. How do, you, how do you do that? Now, I'd like to tell you I have these conversations every week as a pastor. That Christine has already had four of them with me, <laughs> folks coming through the office. But truth be told, people don't just ask point blank, how can I convert? Especially people with no church background, people of another faith. And I'm not sitting there talking about Jesus, sharing some, some kind of testimony. No, they're just up front asking. Um, well, maybe tell me why you are wanting to do this. Well, they go on to explain. When they read about Jesus and his message of freedom, they find it beautiful. Freedom, actually, is the word they keep coming back to. Born to take away the sins of the world. So we talk on a couple of occasions for a few hours each time, discussing the Christian faith and following Jesus. And a few weeks later, they're up front in worship, and they each take the microphone and share their testimony about Jesus and wanting to be baptized. And then they knelt and water poured over them, and there was a new genesis 
and actually one that I got to see a little bit further along the way because they eventually uh, went to do further schooling in Richmond, Virginia and ended up transferring their membership into the church I most previously served. Now, I'm cautious in sharing this story, lest anyone think all or even most stories move in such a visibly surprising direction. Most times we wait far longer for the green shoot of Jesus's new genesis to break soil. And indeed, this story had a much longer trail to it. We were just the church that happened to be present when ground broke. I'm also cautious in sharing this story, lest any of us kind of walk away saying, I knew it. We can just sit around, never do or risk anything new in our lives, and God's just going to kind of send answers and solutions and whatever through the door. No, the remarkable thing about the story is that to all outward appearances, this was the wrong soil in which the church might grow. If we were honest, we figured we need to tweak our programs to attract some more middle class uh, white people that didn't like their Presbyterian church down the road or their Methodist down, church down the road and would transfer their membership. Maybe some folks who grew up in the church and just need to recommit. No one was looking at the Muslim community, the in large international community right there around this particular church and thinking, is love himself growing right there? Their walking through the door asking for Bibles and baptism may as well have been an angel from the Lord giving us a dream that shattered our entire paradigm for how things work. And honestly, the paradigm shattering, I think, was a tilling of our heart's soil. Ali and Mandana's presence reconverted us, the church, to the Christmas message. Love incarnate is birthed in improbable soil and impossible situations. And again, this does not mean we are called to sit back, relax, and just believe Jesus will do all the work. No, listen to how our passage ends. When Joseph awoke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. There is a concrete action to be taken in light of the hope that Jesus is born this day. We are called to act concretely, even courageously, in accordance with our hope. Where do you name a particularly improbable soil? A particularly impossible situation? In a time where it is so easy to despair, may we, with Joseph, take the next concrete, courageous step, confident that Jesus is born in unlikely soil and unpromising situations. May we pray like it's true, Sing like it's true, spend like it's true, give like it's true, have hard conversations like it's true, forgive like it's true, mentor like it's true, encourage like it's true, advocate like it's true. May we trust that our every small, courageous obedience is not for naught, but is in fact part of our watering the new Genesis, breaking ground on earth as it is in heaven.